Growing up, when I thought of banned books, I thought of books that perhaps had some ideas of, you know, hatred or or rape, maybe, or foul language, that sort of thing. That's what I equated banned books with. What did I know as a kid, right? But The Dancer's Girl has none of that. You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. It airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. On Real Fiction, I speak with novelists, journalists, scholars, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. My guest today, Stacy Lee, is a renowned author of young adult novels. Her biggest selling book, The Downstairs Girl, was recently challenged by a politician to have it removed from schools and libraries. All real fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Stacy Lee. One of the most intriguing books right now in the United States is a young adult novel published two years ago. Stacy Lee's The Downstairs Girl was released in 2019. Since then, this work of historical fiction has become a bestseller. It has been included in influential book club selections and has appeared on numerous best books of the year lists. In fact, too many to name. In April, it was announced that the novel is being adapted for a television series. And in another vein, the novel was challenged. This is a term used when a book is targeted for content, which can sometimes result in booksellers, librarians receiving pressure to remove books from shelves. Fortunately, this audience, the audience for this book continues to expand. Stacy Lee is the New York Times and indie best-selling author of historical and contemporary young adult fiction. While we will largely discuss The Downstairs Girl today, I want to mention that her most recent novel is Luck of the Titanic. A native of Southern California and a fourth-generation Chinese-American, Stacy Lee is a founder of the We Need Diverse Books movement and writes stories for all kids, even the ones who look like adults. And I include myself in this category. And on a personal note, I read The Downstairs Girl with my niece who chose this book for a semester long book project. We were both riveted by how the book breaks stereotypes and has a main character who rises from adversity. Joining me from California to discuss her work is author Stacy Lee. Stacy, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. And I really loved hearing that you read the book with your niece. What a joy. 
It, it was a joy. And, you know, when I watched uh, young eyes light up at this story, I just really hoped to get you on the program because it ended up being so timely. And I personally learned so much from this book. It's meticulously researched. It gives readers an account of the American South, specifically in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1890. And it brings into focus the plight of a 17-year-old Chinese-American woman named Jo Kwan, who secretly becomes an advice columnist for a newspaper. But in the backdrop, what I did not know is that there's some pieces of post-Civil War history that were not known to me, and I think in general they're not well known, which is that there were plantation owners coercing Chinese workers to live and work on their land. And in general, the working conditions were terrible. Can you give us a sense of uh, how you learned about this history and what drew you to write this story? Absolutely. Um, You know, Lori, I did not know that either about the history of the Chinese in the South. Um, It's not something that was ever taught in the history books. And, you know, being from the West Coast, (laughs) we learned a lot of our Chinese history having to do with the West Coast, which is where the main Uh, wave of immigration came into the United States during the gold rush. But you don't hear much about the Chinese in the South. Um, However, uh, I had always wanted to write a story set in the South. Um, And I think there was something about that area that always sort of appealed to me, the all the conflict that was inherently in that region, and the contrast, I would say, between a society that sort of values these very genteel way of living, but juxtaposed against, you know, the history of racism in that area. I thought that led to a lot of interesting insight into uh, the human brain and behavior. So I was always interested in writing something set in the South. And when I heard that the Chinese were brought in to the South. I think it must have been an article that uh, someone sent me. I thought, wow, this is this is the time um, to write that story. And I started investigating a little more about that time period. Um, a lot of Chinese were being brought in to work on railroads. There was um, some problems in, in China, and they had to come over to America because there was work there, especially in Gold Mountain in California. And um, then they were brought in to replace these field slaves because it was thought that they were hardworking and that they could withstand these long periods of working in the sun with obedient temperaments. I mean, there were a lot of stereotypes. So they were brought over thinking, okay, this would be a great population to replace the field slaves. Well, it turned out that the Chinese really didn't like being subject to these conditions any more than anyone else might have and ended up sort of slipping away, uh, breaking their contracts, um, and just sort of being absorbed into Southern society. When you first learned about this, how did you approach your research? I'm always fascinated by how works of historical fiction find their original source material. Did you find it mostly in Georgia, or were there other archival sites that had these treasure troves of documents to study? I would love to say there were treasure troves, but there was not a lot of information about Chinese Hmm. in the South at this time. It was actually quite difficult to find uh, information. And so what what I ended up doing was going to my local library Um, in San Jose. There's the Martin Luther King Library in downtown San Jose. 
and spoke to the librarians there um, who are always so, so helpful. They know exactly where to direct you. And they directed me to a particular floor with the history of Chinese in America. Well, it ended up being like one shelf and very, very, Mm. I mean, just not a lot of um, work put out in this area. And so uh, the things that I relied on were accounts of people who, self-published accounts of people who had grown up in the South, um, Chinese people who had grown up and who just had, you know, history in that area. And that's how I learned about the day-to-day life. Eventually, I did make my way over to Atlanta and started uh, researching more of, you know, Civil War, Reconstruction sort of history, and found a few references to the Chinese in those. But it, it was a lot of digging around. I can imagine. And when I tried to do a little bit of thinking about what I had read, I ran across the piece of history that relates to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And I wondered if you could give us just a brief history of what that was and how that impacted some of the characters in your story. Sure, of course. Um, So if you haven't heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, I would say you're not alone. There are a lot of people who haven't heard of it, including myself up until the last 10 or 20 years. That was not something I really knew about, even though it was part of my own history. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was the first significant law restricting immigration into the United States. Um, It's the only federal law banning a group of people based on race. It lasted over 60 years until 1945. So 1882 to Mm. around 1945. It was only really lifted because China had become an important ally of the United States Uh. in World War II. And the U.S. did not want to offend its ally. So even after that, uh, the law limited immigration to like 100 people a year. So practically, it was still a ban. Um, I would say, why did it happen? If I had to whittle it down to a single word, (laughs) it would be scapegoating. Uh, Many Americans on the West Coast attributed like these declining wages and economic problems to Chinese. And it was easy to point a finger and blame them because of the way we looked, of the fact that they didn't always understand English. It was hard to fight back. Chinese only comprised um, about, I think it was 0.002% of the population. Very, very small number. But Congress ended up passing this act to sort of placate uh, workers, I would say, and assuage concerns about this idea of racial purity. So it's hard to write historical fiction um, about the Chinese and not talk about this law. And that's why when I write my historical fiction, there's always some reference to it. We are so we were so influenced by this law. And, you know, personally for myself, I don't know if this is interesting, Lori. It's definitely not something my parents told me or talked about growing up because, you know, it was this idea that when you're not supposed to be here, you learn to be quiet or you learn to keep quiet, keep your mouth quiet, closed about it. Uh, As you said, I'm fourth generation Chinese American, which means my ancestors during that exclusion period were not allowed to be citizens um, or have the right of citizens. My dad was a paper son, which uh, a paper son is someone who comes here under false papers. He came Mm. when he was 11. He didn't speak any English. Uh, He came with his brother, who was 13, who also didn't speak English. He came over on a boat. They landed here. They had no idea of 
the country, the customs, anything, and were uh, sent to live with a sister who they did not know. He became a citizen when the act was lifted and then and then served in the Air Force. But up until recent times, still never, mm. never spoke about his origins. It was almost like a source of shame. Um, it shouldn't be, but it, but that's how it was. So that's the context of what Chinese Americans have had to, had to deal with. And it's important to know about it because Chinese people have been instrumental in building the country we live, from the railroads to the infrastructure. I just learned that they built the whole Sonoma Valley <laughs> and wine country um, since really the nation's birth. A few even served in the Civil War. You're quite right. I think very few people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. It always baffles me when I when I learn something new through a piece of fiction or a work of nonfiction. I'm always stunned when there are it's like these different camps emerge. There are those who just want to know everything. They're voracious readers and learners, and some kind of react differently. I'm mentioned in the uh, introduction that, look, this has become a bestseller. It has a huge audience. And then there's there's also been a component of, I, I don't know how we would characterize it, resistance or just objection. How did you learn about the fact that there was a so-called challenge to the book? Yeah. And what does that mean? <laughs> okay, sure. A challenge is uh, simply an attempt uh, by a group or maybe a person to remove a book from the shelves. And in my case, I think it was a person, a politician, um, mm. who uh, attempted to, re to remove it, put it on a list of books that he wanted banned. So a challenge is that attempt. The ban is the actual removal of the book. And uh, how did I find out? Um, I found out through Twitter, Lori. <laughs> Someone tweeted me. Of course. And... The source of all reliable information, right? And so that's how I found out. Um, if you asked me why the downstairs girl, I mean, growing up, when I thought of banned books, I thought of books that perhaps had some ideas of, you know, hatred or or rape, maybe, or foul language, that sort of thing. That's what I equated banned books with. What did I know as a kid, right? But The Downstairs Girl has none of that. And I can only uh, surmise that it, it is because it centers a Chinese girl as the main character and uh, brings up her own issues of um, what it feels like to be invisible in American society and not have a voice. And perhaps to the powers that be that feels like um, a threat. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. This is all what I'm guessing because I've never had a conversation with anybody who's, who uh, objects to the book. Right. I, I find that baffling. Um, but let's talk about that main character uh, who is a riveting figure and absolutely delightful to read about. Um, her name is Jo Kwan. And I mentioned that she becomes this, this newspaper columnist. She does advice column. And what's so amazing is that this character has trained herself to ignore hostility, ignore stares, um, she lives in uh, an environment of hostility and vulnerability, but at the same time, she gets this idea 
to create an advice column for a newspaper-owning family um, that lives in the house above her home, which is also secret. And she, I mean, she just does this thing. She establishes herself as a columnist, which we always love to talk about on this program because uh, the the newspaper industry in, in the United States has so many fascinating strains. So I wanted to know how you got the idea to place this character uh, in that role and maybe a little something about what you learned about the newspaper industry at that time. Sure. I think when I was thinking of the character of Miss Sweetie and Joe Kwan and someone who is used to keeping her head down, I I have to admit that it felt quite personal to me as someone who grew up. I, I grew up in Southern California. We were like one of two Chinese families in uh, my school district. And I always felt so visible when I didn't want to be visible. I stood out and and it stood out in a way that was not a great way. I mean, we would get teased a lot. That was just the nature of kids, right? But I grew up not wanting to really trying to make myself as small as I could so that I did not get teased and did not look any more odd than I already knew I did. So Joe, even though she's a historical figure, I mean, I think those feelings of feeling like uh, you are, you stand out too much are very much relevant to today. So one of the things that I often felt growing up was that I had opinions and I had opinions, even though I was always the person in the back of the room. I had a rich inner life, let's say. And so I I wanted to give Joe this rich inner life as well. And I, the newspaper column was really the way that she got to really speak her voice, speak her mind. Um, when I did some research into this area, I realized that those advice columnists held a lot of sway over women at the time. And being someone who really loved reading Dear Abby and Dear Landers, all of that was, you know, I reached for that first when I when I opened up the newspaper. The idea of her speaking her mind or making her opinions known through the advice column was really appealing to me. Back in the day, I don't think a lot of people knew that those agony ants, as they called them, were actually men, um, because it was men who got the positions, right? And yes. you never knew who was writing that column. I want to remind listeners, my guest today is Stacy Lee. We are discussing her historical fiction novel, The Downstairs Girl. And the main character... Stacy, we've been discussing is Joe Kwan, and she uh, works as a newspaper uh, columnist writing advice columns. But before she does that, she has this um, creative spirit that just endears readers to her, and she works uh, in a hat store, and I can never pronounce the, the term millinery. Uh, she's yes, a milliner. I can't either. And it's it's genuinely fantastic to read about the hat making process. I'd love to know how you landed on that as a vehicle for making a lot of important statements about society in this book. Yes. Well, if you'll recall, I told you when I was in school that I was the kid in the back of the classroom who really never spoke up and tried to make myself as small as possible. However, um, and people are such contradictions, aren't they? 
I, in middle school, I decided that I was going to start wearing hats. And I'm not talking about like baseball caps. I'm talking about real felted hats with feathers and things. Like, I'm not quite sure why I decided to do that. But all I remember is I saw a hat. um, My mother was shopping and I saw a hat. I wanted the hat and I started I started wearing it. And then, you know, once you have one, you need another. And so my collection slowly started to build. I always wondered what my mother thought of me wearing these hats to school. And I was still, um, I was still me. I just felt like I needed to do this one thing, even though I wasn't comfortable speaking out in class or really, you know, doing anything to draw attention to myself incongruously I wore these hats to school and I've never I've never really um sorted out why I did this I think I just wanted to express myself I think we all need to express ourselves in some way and that certainly was the case with Joe so um millinery uh made sense in 1890 and uh it certainly gives her a way to express her creativity as well as being a symbol for um, being able to hide herself uh, because she can hide herself in the shadows of her hat. And a hat really does um, give you some cover from society. Oh, wow. You've given me a lot to think about here. Yes. Um, So that creative, it was a creative force. It almost ended up being a kind of armor and and a protective element in her wardrobe. Did you actually get into yourself into making hats? Because I have to say that when you read this book, the the care and precision with how hats are constructed and how the embellishments are thought through for a particular event is really extraordinary. I did look into taking a course on millinery. Um, it's one of those arts where you where you need to apprentice, and that that experience takes a, a long time to actually do. Right? There's no like brief course you can take. Not that I found on simple millinery because there, it's such a process. So I wasn't able to take my class on millinery. But I did, you know, do the the everyday book research and video research and saw the process. And I've always really been into handcrafts. So I tried decorating an already made hat. And and I realized that it's really tricky to get the balance right, the colors right, everything. Well, so does the character uh, in the book. And she has she does such exquisite taste and technique. And and she's clearly the most talented um, hat maker in the shop, but she's also the most vulnerable. And you depict the, uh, the the relationship between employee and employer so well. And the concept of payment and salary and debt is a really Im- important uh, element to the story. Can you talk about just money and debt and what you hope the reader will take from? So... Chinese did not have as a place in uh, Southern society, and one of one of the ways that they um, they were disadvantaged in that way is that they could not get loans, so they had to go to the back alleys if they needed money, and this meant having a debt over your head for possibly you know longer than your life. 
I think when somebody reads this book, they are going to want to look at the full body of your work. And we've talked about Jo Kwan really rising, rising above the adversities that she's facing. Is this a common trait in the characters that you like to write? Mm, yes, it is. In fact, um, I am very invested in creating characters, heroines, who can, uh, who can advocate for themselves. And maybe they don't always start that way. <laughs> but one stereotype that I grew up with was the idea that Asian women are these passive figures who, who passive, submissive, obedient figures. And I have two sisters um, and a very active mother. And the four of us, we were all very... Uh, our own people. And, uh, and so one of the things that I, I want to do in my writing is to give girls and boys and everything in between heroines and heroes that show Asians outside of the stereotypes that we usually see them in. And, and so, yes, I do write active heroes with their own agency. And I think it's fun to do that. You want to see characters drive and change for themselves. It's absolutely the case. And Joe Kwan is a wonderful heroine in this book. Uh, the book is The Downstairs Girl. The author is Stacy Lee. This is one of those rare books that when you're reading it, you connect it with the headlines that show up in the newspaper. So Stacy, thank you very much for joining Real Fiction today. It was such a delight to talk about your incredible novel. Thank you so much for having me, Lloyd. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com, where you can learn more about today's guest. I'd also like to thank my niece, Valerie, for her literary instinct in selecting the downstairs girl for her school project and inviting me to read it with her. Thanks everyone for listening.